0: Good evening to everybody. Thank you for inviting me to come to speak, Um, and thank you for coming down um, from wherever you came. I mean, I I clearly came from farther than you guys, but nevertheless, you made the effort. And um, before I start, so you heard the introduction, and I want to um, thank Ahuva for the opportunity to come finally see your side of the the story. You know, we've always seen you uh, over in Israel, and now we see you... uh, at your home, uh, and uh, if any of you want to join Ahuva on, on her um, yearly expedition out to to the excavations, and if not you, your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, your friends, your cousins, etc., um, you're more than welcome, and, the, um, and if you're interested, you can also check out our website and uh, our blog, etc. Now, this evening... I'm not going to be, you know, actually, I have an idea. Now that everybody saw me that I have a hat like Indiana Jones, I'll take it (laughs) off, okay? Okay. Uh, This evening, we're not going to, I'll mention uh, Telesafi and some of the finds um, uh, later on in the lecture, but what we're going to do, and this was actually a suggestion that came from Aryeh, is to try to talk about archaeology and the relationship with, um, we very often have a lot of media hype, Really in relationship to archaeology, and to try to um, place that in context, and why why do the the the, uh, the fantastic stories are I wouldn't say the fantastic the the unusual stories always hit the press, and what, what does it mean? Okay, so um, as I'm sure you're all aware of, you know, every once in a while you hear in the, you see in the media and the various uh, media reports on new and exciting finds relating to the biblical world. Now, what's behind this? How much of this is reliable, and how can one tell, especially someone who's not coming from a, a professional background, what's real and what's fake, what's uh, hyped up, and what's um, you know what's out there um, to make a, a fun time, and and um, what is and should be the interplay between good archaeology, good archaeological practice, and the public media. And, for example, um, how would I, as an archaeologist, interact with the media? One of the reasons why these things that relate to biblical archaeology, and when I mean biblical archaeology, I mean archaeology which deals with the regions around the land of Israel from more or less the periods which are, from which the biblical text was formed. And when I say biblical archaeology, we're not, uh, we're not out to prove or disprove the Bible at least that's what our, 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 as archaeologists, but rather we're we're studying the ancient cultures and understanding ancient cultures, and from those ancient cultures, the biblical text was formed. So by studying these ancient cultures, among other things, we uh, gain perspectives on the uh, biblical text as well. Now, but for many, many people in the Judean Christian world, it's very, very important... To feel that we're, you know, we're proving the Bible. That, you know, is there a Sodom and a Gomorrah? Is there a David and Solomon, etc., etc.? And for many, this proof is a very, very um, central part of the faith. And, and many believe that biblical archaeology is the place where they can find that. And that is one of the reasons why there's such a deep thirst for various aspects relating to the, biblical text, uh, to the biblical text in the archaeological evidence. And all you have to say is, I found um, the bone box of Jesus' brother, and they go bananas. On the other hand, there's another aspect. And out there, there are quite a few people that besides being religious, they're also out there to make a buck and to take the, uh, the, 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 the public for a ride. And we'll try to um, uh, differentiate between the two. Now, archaeology really is the ultimate hobby I mean, because everybody feels they can do it. And just about anybody was or is interested in archaeology. And uh, that's what they, the vision is. Uh, uh, and Ahuva and can t- tell you that I don't wear a whip in, in the field. But one of the funny things, and this is something that I see r- very, very regularly. I, I would say about once a month or once every two months, I get an email or a letter uh, from someone who's who's a without any archaeological training at all has read a book or two and has decided that he has the or he or she has the answer to some uh, mystery that's plagued the, the the world for you know for for centuries and and he's going to you know you know connect the dots and solve the problems and and very often um, we have this situation where someone who all he's done is read 3 books in archaeology thinks that he's now the um, the big expert, and um, I always find it's funny that nobody would come up to a, a neurosurgeon after having read uh, you know, the medical reports and Reader's Digest and suggest him how to change the, uh, his surgical procedures uh, but for some reason, people think that, you know, archaeologists, oh, they, what do they know? They just you know, they, they're out there in the sun, their, their brain is dried from the heat, so I can explain everything. So that's also an interesting aspect of it. But on the other hand, that's what I think attracts people, because uh, archaeology seems to be something which is close enough to grasp, even for a lay person, and even though To really understand what's going on, you have to know all the details, but nevertheless, even a person who just read a couple of books, a couple of articles, has a uh, subscription to Biblical Archaeology Review or whatever, you nevertheless get the feeling of what's going on in the field. But the bottom line is, is to be able to make real progress and real understanding in the field requires years and years of training, years and years of research, and it's not something that, you know, You get up one morning, you decide, okay, I'm going to deal, uh, start dealing in archaeology and solve all the major issues. Go to the library, read three books, and solve the all the problems. So let's go on to first. Let's start with some of the examples of the unusual archaeology. Okay, and here's I'll just I'm just I just took a. A handful of interesting cases. Well, of course, you know there's Noah's Ark. You know that's you know, uh, uh, and in the biblical text it says that Noah's Ark was uh, ended up on Mount Ararat, and, and which is identified in Turkey. So periodically you hear about these expeditions of people who are almost always not archaeologists, but you know it's very often someone who's like a A former SEAL member who was a bank manager at one point uh, uh, became interested in fishing and then decided to go into biblical archaeology. Organizes an expedition, looks at some um, uh, uh, satellite photo- photographs of the of the mountain Ararat, notices some something which he thinks is evidence of the of the of the uh, of Noah's Ark, which is invariably just a geological formation, and then spends uh, several months or years trepsing through the mountains trying to find it, and invariably nothing's found. But every five years ago or so you hear about something uh, like this. Or um, the Shroud of Turin. The Shroud of Turin is a, something that appeared in, in Italy Turin in Turin the, in the 14th century, in the Middle Ages, and supposedly it was the burial shroud of Jesus from his original burial in Jerusalem in the 1st century. Uh, and suppo- and what you have here is this is the, this is the, the shroud, you know, a picture of the shroud itself, and this is supposed to be Jesus' face, and you hear that's an enlargement, and that's that's the side that covered the front of his body, and this is the side that covered the back of his body. And this turned into a very, very important relic in Christianity, and for many years it was considered that by some um, magical religious uh, process, the imprintation of, uh, of Jesus' body was, uh, was, uh, was, fa- was left on this um, piece of cloth. Now, just a little note, um, this always was simply impossible because if you notice over here, this is, the, this is his face, and that's the top of his head. Right, you see right over there? Yeah. Now, notice that the back of his head comes immediately over here. So if you had a shroud and you put it here, And then here, if you would pick it up, you would have about a uh, 20 centimeter uh, gap between the front and the back of the head. So, I mean, that already makes it uh, suspicious. But anyway, so they've carbon dated this, and it's clearly from the 14th century. So it has nothing to do with the actual original Jesus, but this, every once in a while, and for example, this is a, a picture from a National Geographic documentary in which they're trying to recreate how the, the Shroud of Turin was used, and this is, they, they even chose an actor who looks like Jesus. And, and this, you know, every once in a while... This comes up again and again. And then, of course, the tomb of Jesus' family. I mean, according to the accepted Christian tradition, at least from the Byzantine period, from the 4th century CE, most Christians locate the place where Jesus was buried in the old city of Jerusalem at what we call the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And there are good chances that that might be the place yes or no. Recently, um, you may have uh, heard about this, this book came out, which based on a tomb that was found several decades ago, a very, very interesting character by the name of uh, Simcha Yaakov which you see over here, claims that a bunch of ossuaries that were found in the tomb, and ossuaries are bone boxes, and during the Second temple period, the, the most common method of burial in Jerusalem and the, and it's, and the surroundings was you would place the uh, deceased in a cave, and after about a year, you'd come back, and after the flesh had decomposed, you took the bones and you put them into a box, and the box usually was something about this size, usually dictated by the, the length of the longest bone. And so we have various bone boxes like this, ossuaries throughout the, uh, the region of Jerusalem and beyond, very, very common in the Second Temple period. Now, and this is the time of Jesus. Now, it, one of the things was is that they also occasionally wrote the names of the deceased on the bone boxes. Now, in this uh, case, they had a collection of ossuaries, and among others, they, have, they had names such as Jacob and Joseph and, and Jesus, and Miriam. And from this, this group of uh, scholars who included Iacobici Jacob, uh, and James Cameron from the um, the Titanic, uh, they came out with this enormous hullabaloo, as they say, and claiming that since these here you have these names, this is the tomb of the family of Jesus. Now, all this is very nice, except <laughs> is that Those names, which we know from the New Testament as being the the names of Jesus' family, were extremely common in Jerusalem during that period. So if we would find a tomb nowadays in the Jewish cemetery over here, and there was a a David, a Solomon, a Bathsheba, and a Ruth, we would hardly say that that's David's family. It's just that those are common names. So there probably wasn't anything to it. Now, this guy, uh, Jakubovici, he has a series, which is, um, I don't know if it's shown in the States, it's, it's in Canada called *The Naked Archaeologist. Now, he's not an archaeologist, and he doesn't appear naked on the show. Uh, but he's a very, very colorful, colorful character, and he, um, he's well-read, but he connects the dots in places where the dots shouldn't be connected. And uh, so for example, uh, slightly uh, before the, the Jesus Family uh, movie, he came out with this very, very impressive movie uh, called The Exodus Decoded, in which he tried to place the story of Exodus as in the, in the biblical text in a very, very specific period in Egyptian history using extremely sophisticated graphics, again, using uh, James Cameron and all his, uh, his um, Hollywood background for it. And basically, again, he tried to connect these dots. And I know how impressive it was because um, one day I receive a phone call from my mother. And she says, I just saw this fantastic movie about the Exodus. It's, it's astounding, it's so convincing, etc." And I said, whose movie? Jacob She says, oh yeah, let's see this. So I, I saw the movie and actually, actually I even offered to, to debate him on television and he declined it's a, the problem is, is that things that seem to be connected to the unprofessional eye and when, once you check the damning details things start uh, being problematic and it reminds me many many years ago some of you may remember there was this very interesting author by the name of Immanuel Velikovsky and he came out with a series of books in which he claimed that the he wanted to change the entire chronology of the ancient world and he among other things he claimed that um, one of the major events that occurred was a was that the two planets earth and another planet moved one um, next to each other uh, passed by and the the, the rotation of the earth changed. and and he had a whole uh, series of uh, theories about this now um, the story goes is that they once gathered a group of scientists in different, different fields Archaeologists, historians, physicists, chemists, astrophysicists, et etc, et cetera, and to say what they what they think about Velikovsky's theories, because he was such a, a broad, well-read person, uh, and so the reaction was the asked yes, the chemi- the chemist, the chemist as well. He doesn't know chemist, chemistry, but the other things seem very, very impressive. He has the physicist. He has the, he doesn't know physics, but everything else seems impressive. And this goes down the line. So this is what very often happens is if you take a story and you and either you don't know it or you hide from the viewers all the little details that make the connecting the lines difficult, then you can do it. And that's exactly what he does a lot. Another thing that came out recently is a group of semi-scholars came out with a, a claim that a, an ossuary, another ossuary that was found in Jerusalem, which was unfortunately found in an antiquities shop, not from an excavation, had on it an inscription. This is The inscription is located over here, and you can see it written out over here and over here. And what it says on it, according to the, the plain and simple reading of the, of the inscription, is Yaakov bar Yosef, Ahi Yeshu, Jacob, the son of Joseph, the brother of Jesus. Now, here already, um, if you have Jacob, the son of Joseph, the brother of Jesus, statistically, you're getting close. And this was a big, a big thing, because here you may have the burial of James, the, the brother of, of Jesus. And this was a, the media, this was ex- exhibited in the museums throughout the world. And then people started examining it, and apparently, originally, What was written, it was Yaakov bar Yosef, James, the son of uh, Joseph. And some stage, apparently the owner of this, the antiquities dealer, added this on. And once he had that on, it makes a little more interesting. Once it's just Yaakov bar Yosef, there were probably a hundred of them in the Jerusalem telephone book at that time. Another interesting object was about 20 years ago, a small ivory pomegranate, about this size, appeared on the antiquities market. Again, not from a, from an organized excavation. So this this little object appeared on the antiquities market, and what it was, it was a it was a, a piece of ivory shaped uh, like a pomegranate, and on it there was a an inscription in early in early Hebrew letters, Kodesh Koanim, le and they understood it as Le Beit Hashem. Translated, consecrated by the priests to the house of Yahweh. And if this reading was correct, and if there was a, this was a, a genuine object, this was astounding because this would be the only existing object in the world that, uh, that originated from the temple of the house of, God, of Yahweh, the house of, uh, of God, the temple in Jerusalem. Now, this object appeared on the antiquities market for a short time, disappeared. And several years later, appeared in in an antiquities collection in uh, Switzerland. And since it was thought to be the only surviving object from the Temple of Solomon, the the Israel Museum managed to find a donor who for, I think the sum was $450,000, bought this object. It was brought to Jerusalem, and it was on display in the museum. Now, for many, many years, I, I always told my students that if they gave me $450,000, I'd bring back two of these and they wouldn't be broken. Uh, <laughs> uh, I never, I never uh, believed that this was uh, real. It was too good to be true. And in fact, just last year, a team of scholars, matter of fact, Professor Aaron Demsky, who was supposed to come and unfortunately had to cancel, he was one of this, uh, this team of scholars. They checked this again, and it turned out to be a forgery. And what this happened was simply, it was a, an ancient ivory in the shape of a pomegranate, which is something that we know from various periods, which some uh, modern forger carved out the letters to look to, to see that it, uh, that was an ancient thing. And that, of course, immediately raised its interest and its, and its price. Now, one of the reasons why we see so many of these forgeries is, be- is because of this interest of the public for biblical antiquities. Another thing that fuels this industry of forgery is the fact that people pay enormous prices for these, um, for these objects. And uh, a story that I, I always remember uh, is that several years ago, I was sent by uh, my university, Barilán University, to, to London to meet some... Uh, very rich uh, collector of antiquities, uh, in the hope that he would give a big donation, donation to the university, uh, which unfortunately he didn 't and while I was in his house in London, two very, very shady middle eastern characters you know they sort of looked like the the, the, t- the characters that you have on um, on twenty four you know the uh, you know Jack Bauer fights those type of characters they came in and they came and they brought him a couple of objects which didn't look too real to me, but this guy took out a, a wad of $100 bills about that thick and handed it over to them, and without asking very many questions, they handed him the objects, they walked out the door. So there's a market out there, and that fuels the, these things. Now, another very interesting example is about five years ago, another object appeared on the antiquities market, and this was a large stone about this size. Blackstone, and on it, it had, in, uh, in, again in ancient Hebrew letters, a, a depiction of the restoration of the temple. And this fit in exactly, or almost exactly, with the depiction of the dest- restoration of the temple that's described in 2 Kings 11, chapter 11, during the time of the king of Ye- Yeho- Yehoash, um, in which he, um, the, the temple was in disrepair. He collected money, and they repaired the, uh, the temple. Now, this when first hit the market again, this was a, an astounding uh, find because here you have uh, a, what seems to be a, a royal inscription from the time of the Judean kings depicting event an event mentioned in the biblical text. What could be more exciting than that? But then again, they started analyzing and, then, and both from, the, uh, the, from a point of view of a material science of the inscription, but also from the linguistic analysis of the text. And this is an interesting thing. Biblical Hebrew... And modern Hebrew are very similar, but very different. And there are all kinds of terms that are borrowed from Biblical Hebrew that are used in modern Hebrew, that their meaning has changed. And an example of this is the term, In Hebrew, in in the Biblical text, in the text about the the renovation of the temple in the time of the King Yoash, they use that term. But in Biblical Hebrew, Bedekhabayit means the, the broken house. The, if you, you're, you're, the crack in the house is the bedekhabayit. In modern Hebrew, when you say you're doing bedekhabayit, is you're fixing the house. And the guy who wrote this inscription used the modern Hebrew term, the modern Hebrew understanding of that term, so they caught him. But but unfortunately, the, the forgers are getting more sophisticated, both from the point of view of their materials, and from their knowledge. And I'm sh- I am absolutely convinced that in the museums and throughout the world, there are many objects that are forgeries, not to mention in the collections of the, uh, all the anti- anti- antiquities collectors throughout the world, there are, there are tons and tons of um, uh, forged objects. And the reason being is that there are people out there making a lot of money on these uh, forged objects. Okay, now, another example is, several years ago, an archaeologist, actually this guy isn't a real archaeologist, he excavated a, a cave near Jerusalem, and there was a little stick figure there, on the, uh, marked off on one of the uh, walls of the cave, and he immediately understood this for some convoluted reasoning, which I never managed to understand. That this is the cave of John the Baptist. He put out a book. He put out a movie on it, etc. Everybody was very happy. And of course, Sodom and Gomorrah every, com- every once in a while comes up. They try to find Sodom and Gomorrah on the eastern side of the, of the Dead Sea, and. The, these things always try to, they, they come up, and invariably, they, things that are, point, you know, they bring in all kinds of very, very sophisticated technology, and they mark, and they tell you right there underneath the, uh, the Dead Sea is Sodom and Gomorrah, and invariably it turns out to be some geological formation, nothing to do with the uh, biblical text. And again and again and again, we have these people who are, for the most part, non-professionals, amateurs, who have this thirst for archaeological finds relating to the Bible, who make these claims, and time and time again, these fantastic claims, which supposedly show a straight, direct dovetailing of the archaeological remains with the biblical text, uh, are shown to be um, simply media fantasy. And invariably, the best way to tell um, the difference between the, the real stuff and the fake stuff is the um, the fake stuff is usually done by people who are not archaeologists, they're not published in, in scientific journals, and it's, they appear a lot on, you know, um, Discovery Channel, or sometimes even on National Geographic Channel, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. but it, it stops there, and um, that's, that's usually the, uh, the bottom line. But, on the other hand, there are real exciting discoveries, and I'm going to go through a couple of them and, and try to understand some of the, the significance and the importance Now, recently, they've been excavating in the city of David. That's the hill, which is to the south of the Temple Mount. Here you can see the Temple Mount of Jerusalem. That's the Dome of the Rock. That's the Western Wall over there. That's Dung Gate. Mount Zion is up this way. You can see that's like a view from the side. That's Mount Zion over there. This is the Kidron Valley. And this is uh, the Mount of Olives uh, up here. And the original location of the city of Jerusalem... Uh, The city of Jerusalem, for example, that David, according to the biblical text, David uh, captured, was over here. And from here, slowly, the city developed throughout the Iron Age, throughout the first temple period. And here, for example, you can see a suggested reconstruction of what this might have looked like. Now, in recent years, there have been a lot of excavations going on over here. And uh, we'll discuss one of them very soon. Now, according to the biblical text... David and Solomon founded their, empire, their, their kingdom around 1000 BCE, and based on the biblical text, they, they developed this very, very extensive empire which ran from uh, at its height from the, from the Nile to the Euphrates, and um, we sort of think of uh, Solomon as something, the equivalent of Constantine the Great, and if that's so, then in theory we should have a lot of evidence on the ground, and in non-biblical historical sources about Solomon and his enterprises. Unfortunately, we don't. There is no extra-biblical historical source from their period which specifically mentions their name. And in the archaeological remains, we may have some things and may not. And because of that, over the last, um, I would say, decade or two, a very, very strong uh, voice has come out in among archaeologists and biblical historians, that perhaps the entire story about David and Solomon in the biblical text is, in fact, a later creation without any historical basis for it. And that it's all uh, an attempt to recreate backwards a a foundation story, a foundation myth for the Israelite peoples. Now, if this this is so, this is quite a revolution. Now, I have no doubt that even if... Straight out, David and Solomon existed. The depiction that we have in the biblical text about David and Solomon is, A, filtered through the ideology of the writer of the Bible, and it's filtered through our understanding of what a, what our of what a big king is. So it's sort of like, you know, when you say, I, I caught a fish this big, you know, it's probably this big. And they probably were very charismatic, you know, Bedouin chieftains or something of the sort, who over a limited period of time had a, a very, very dramatic influence on the, on, the, on the region, but they probably did not leave very much evidence. But the question is, is there anything? And if there's nothing at all, then maybe they weren't there. Maybe it's all a, uh, a later literary cre- uh, creation. And um, recently though, there seems to be evidence that this may not be the case, and this especially from the excavations conducted by uh, an archeologist by the name of Dr. Eilat Mazar up here in the city of David. And what she found is evidence of a very, very large building, and um, this is portions of this building, which can be dated either to the 10th or 9th century BCE based on the finds. And that would mean that it's either more or less from the time of Solomon or slightly afterwards or century afterwards. And although a lot has been coming out in all the press saying that this is David's palace, and, you know, of course, people expect that she found, you know, the, you know, the sign above it saying this is David's palace. She didn't. Uh, she didn't. Uh, what this is, it shows that during the 10th or early 9th century BCE, either the time of Solomon, according to the biblical chronology, or a century or so afterwards, Jerusalem was already a large enough city, an important enough city that it had a large palace. So it seems to indicate that... The story in the biblical text of Jerusalem in this early period, being a large and significant city, has some basis in the archaeological remains as well. Now, does this mean that we have proven that the story of David and Bathsheba occurred, as it says in the Bible, that he stood on his his balcony and looked over taking a bath? No, but it nevertheless gives some framework of historicity to the general story, and very often, that's what we can provide as biblical archaeologists. We won't be able to find the tent that Abraham lived in, and we won't be able to find um, the, the porch in which David sat when he looked at, um, at Bathsheba, or the stone that he threw at, you know, and, and hit Goliath's uh, forehead. But we will be able to provide some of the cultural realia the reality behind the stories, which, if you want, put some flesh on the bones of the biblical story, and 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 gives it to more color and texture. Now, another uh, interesting find recently uh, uh, brought to light is uh, my colleague, uh, Professor Hanan Eshel, from who's in my department in Bar Ilan University, who was surveying in the Judean Desert. He's a big expert on the Dead Sea Scrolls. And in between crawling in and out of all kinds of um, caves, he he came across a Bedouin who who showed him a couple of fragments of, a, of some scrolls that he had in his possession. And Hanan uh, worried that this, these things would disappear, uh, arranged for a donation, and they bought this thing from the, this Bedouin. And Hanan then afterwards got in all kinds of problems with the uh, Israel Antiquities Authority. But that's another issue. But what it turned out is these are uh, very, very clear sections of, from the book of Vayikra, from Leviticus, from a portion of Parashat Emor, and specifically dealing with the with the story of the Feast of Tabernacles, the uh, the Feast of Sukkot, and it dates to the time of the Bar Kokhva rebellion, which is the rebellion that the Jews conducted against the Romans in one thirty 130 to one thirty five, about fifty years after, sixty years after the destruction of the of the Second Temple in seventy, and what happened is after the rebellion failed, the rebels escaped to the desert, and they hid out in the caves, and the, and the Romans slowly hunted them down and killed them one by one, and this group, they apparently fled, and they took with them their Torah scrolls, and it can be assumed that if they were Orthodox, you know, they were Orthodox, then everybody was Orthodox, uh, uh, they were... Uh, uh, that, um, they, they, they read their daily their, their, the portion, uh, uh, so they would read a portion of the Torah on, on Sabbath and during the week, and perhaps this is the portion, the last portion that they read before they were killed, and why? Because if you have a scroll, it would be rolled this way and rolled this way. Now, the sides that were rolled up would retain moisture. So they would decompose eventually, while the side, which was open, would stay dry because of the dry desert um, environment and so what you have is this is as if this is a, of course they can 't prove this is the theory that what you have is simply the the center part, the last portion that was read and now if, if I take this and compare it to the the biblical text it 's fantastic you can see. There it says, kol asher And besides all your vows which you shall give to uh, to the Lord, and basukot te'shvu shivat in the tabernacles, you shall sit for seven days, and all the, uh, the the citizens of Israel shall sit in in tabernacles. And it's it's exactly the, the Masoretic text. And what's altogether fantastic is, is that basically the the shape of the letters in this document from almost 2,000 years ago is almost exactly like the shape of the letters that you have still in use in modern Hebrew. And um, you can basically take a, a kid in third grade speaking modern Hebrew, and he can almost completely read this text out uh, from 2,000 years ago. And that's, I think that's, um, that's absolutely fantastic. Now, um, then I'll go, uh, go to some of the finds from my excavation, and Tel Asafi is this large site, which you see in the picture here, located in central Israel, well known for the fact that Ahuva comes there regularly to dig, and it's one of the largest tales in Israel, and it's identified as Gath of the Philistines and Gath of the Canaanites, and it's well known in the biblical text as one of the major five Philistine cities, and known as the city from where Goliath and the king Achish came from uh, in the biblical text. And it's, it, this uh, site plays a very, very prominent role in the biblical text, particularly in the times around the life of David. And I've been excavating there since 1996. And as I said, you're all welcome to come. And one of the interesting finds that we had several years ago is we found this little sherd the whole thing is maybe this size, and on it, a scratched out, barely able to be seen. And this was only uh, we only saw this after the shirt was cleaned. And just by chance, uh, one of our students was looking at it, and she says to me, yeah, "Is this something?" is says, "Yes, that's something." <laughs> um, and and if we take uh, take it and analyze, we can sort of read the text. And what it says is something like alwat and walat, and it's broken off. And the shirt itself can be dated very, very clearly to the 10th or 9th century BCE. So it's one of the earliest Canaanite inscriptions that we have. And it's it's written in Semitic letters, but it apparently has two non-Semitic Indo-European names. Now, this is very interesting because we know that the Philistines were not Semitic. They came from somewhere outside of the land of Israel. And when they came, they brought with them various cultural ap- attributes, whether their language or their architecture or their religion, etc., which, which tie them to their place of origin. And what's very, very interesting about this is that over the years, uh, scholars have suggested that the name Goliath is, in fact, a non-Semitic name, and it's been suggested to connect it to various... Indo-European, that means uh, languages such as Hittite, L- Lydian, Greek, etc. And one of the names is a name, uh, Aliates. And we may have just a similar name like this. Now, what does this mean? It doesn't mean that we found Goliath cereal bowl. But, and we didn't even find, this, it's not an inscription that says the name of Goliath, or the Goliath. But rather, it says the name of a Goliath, or two Goliath-like names. Now, what's the importance of that? Is It demonstrates that, again, the biblical text, which tells us a story of a battle between David, the young King David, and a figure named Goliath. And by the way, in the biblical text, if you look, one place, David killed Goliath. Another place, a guy named Elchanan killed Goliath. And the big question, what's going on here? So either, the easy way out of it is to harmonize it, is to say, well, David had another name, uh, El Hanan, and then you solve the problem. The, the other option is, is that somebody by the name of El Hanan actually killed him, and David's court, when they wrote the story of David and his rise to, uh, to greatness, at some uh, point, took the story in and uh, incorporated it into the story. But nevertheless the biblical text is telling us that they have a tradition that somewhere around the 10th century, there were people called the Philistines who had names like Goliath, and they fought the Israelites. And here, and these people, among others, lived at Gat. And here we have a little sherd which comes from Gat from that period with names like this. So again, this gives us this general historical background, the cultural realia of the story of the text, and it means that this story in the biblical text reflects, at least in part, not only things from later periods, because some scholars have said that the entire story is something that's created much later on, but rather it deals with earlier periods as well. Now, another very interesting find is, just recently, they've announced that Professor Eod Netzer of the Hebrew University, after years and years and years of searching for Herod's tomb, Herod the Great's tomb uh, tomb in, uh, in, in Herodian, which is just to the south of Jerusalem, he came upon what he thinks is the tomb itself, including very, very monumental remains of a very large building and portions of what seemed to be the sarcophagus, the, the coffin uh, of Herod the Great, and, of, and this the burial um, is, uh, the, the excavation is continuing, so they may yet find other finds. And this was, of course, fascinating. First of all, the very fact that this guy has been searching it for, for, for I mean, since I, I remember as from the 1970s, when I was in high school, they were talking about how any day now he's going to find the tomb of uh, Herod. And it's, uh, Herod is a very, very important figure, in Jewish history and archaeology because he was the big builder of the temple in Jerusalem in the second during the second temple period and he's also very important in Christian traditions because he's identified as the king of the Jews during the time of Jesus even though he's not because he died before that but nevertheless it's very very important another very interesting find is just recently and this is a reconstruction of what the temple in Jerusalem looked like in the second temple period and Along the, the side of the Temple Mount, there was a very, very large drainage channel which is depicted by Josephus. Josephus, the Jewish historian who, who is the major source for, our, for the depiction of the, of the um, revolt of the Jews against the Romans that led to the destruction of the Temple in 70, he describes that when the Romans were about to capture the city, the, the Jews escaped through the sewage system. And uh, just recently, they excavated uh, a portion of the sewage system, uh, but farther down, and you can see very, very clearly how this sewage system is large enough for a person to stand up plus. And this is probably exactly uh, what uh, is depicted over there. Now, another very interesting find, and this is just a little tidbit, is we all know that the land of Israel is called the land of milk and honey. But we have never found any evidence of of honey production in Israel. And in fact, most scholars usually assume that honey, dvash in the Bible, is not bees honey, but rather it's date honey. Silan, it's called, uh, in, in French it's called silan, I think. Uh, uh, anyway, um, uh, and, and this is, uh, in a, just this, uh, this summer, they found in a, in a site in the Beit Shan Valley, which is in the Jordan Valley, a production facility of honey. And what you have here are a long series of beehives made out of mud brick, very, very similar to the type of beehives that you have in in traditional uh, honey um, production, and not only that is they actually analyzed the contents of these beehives and they showed very clearly that you have uh, residue of of honey and beeswax in it, so that was a very interesting little find now another find, and this this is something that I find uh, Archaeologists, to a certain extent, we're, um, if you want, we 're time travelers. but very rarely do you get the, really, uh, you get the feeling, and several, um, at Masada, the, the well-known Masada, where the, the, the last Jews after the second revolt held out against the Romans for several years, and finally the Romans captured it. i 'm sure anybody who's been in Israel, and uh, almost everybody's visited that place, but several years ago, they took some date pits that were found in the excavation and they replanted them and some of them germinated, and date trees grew, and dates grew on those trees. And just last week, um, we have an archaeobotanist, that's a, a botanist who deals with vegetal finds from archeological remains at, at bar University. His name is Mordechai Kislev. He has a collection of these dates, and I, I ate one of them. And, and I, I thought that was absolutely astounding, because you're eating something which is based on the genes of something from 2,000 years ago and it tasted like a regular date, just like the dates we had over there. I mean, I I don't know if that's very, very important from an archeological point of view, but I thought that was absolute, that that blew my mind uh, uh, completely. Okay, now now that we've seen some of the good and some of the bad, let's talk a little about the ups and downs. Um, I would say, as I said before, anyone who's not a full-fledged professional archeologist employed by a reputable academic institution be suspicious. You know, um, you know they always they always say, "Oh yes, I have. I'm very, very revolutionary," and they don't accept me because of this, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That's a lot of crap. Um, <laughs> uh, if you're good, you're, you usually get to get you get a good job. There are no hook, line, and sinker explanations to the biblical mysteries. Nothing is simple. the The biblical text is a a multifaceted, multivocal text which, to, if you want to, you can think of, both, of the biblical text as a, an archaeological tale. It's made of layers and layers, from, composed in different periods, and it doesn't turn into one very simple picture. It's, there's a lot into it, and, and there are very rarely examples when everything fits in perfectly. You take the archaeology, you take the Bible, and they fit in perfectly. It's much more complicated. The exciting discoveries are not out in the antiquities market. They're in the trenches. That's the, You dig, and that's where you find them. And the ones out in the antiquities market, as we said, are very often fakes. But on the other hand, I think that media exposure is very, very important. I mean, it has to be done by a professional archaeologist. It has to be done with a, uh, I would say, in the right amount. But archaeology is a profession which, I think, from a point of view of, it, of its ethics, of its professional ethics, Unless we have a very, very direct and clear contact with the public, in which we publish our fines on a professional level on the one hand, but publish our fines f- for the lay public as well, and in a manner which will attract and, and, and catch the intention of the public, then we're really missing out what we're supposed to be doing. Because we are excavating, we are the stewards, if you want to, those who have been in charge of excavating the past, but it's not ours, it's the public's. And if, we're, if we don't tell the story to the public, then we are basically not doing our job. And I think we ha- it's, it's not easy, and we have to sort of play the balance between turning every story into a cessationalist story and not, but nevertheless, we have to be out there. And I think one of the problems is that, is that many archeologists are say, oh, I don't want to deal with the media, I don't want to deal with the public, I'm just doing science. And what then happens is the, media lose, uh, the, the public loses its interest in, in archaeology, and people don't come to excavate, we don't get funding, and you know although it used to be that archaeologists that were you know, independently rich and they can fund their excavations by themselves, that doesn't happen anymore. And as I said, I think we have to go to the public. And if we don't go to the public, that's the most uh, important thing, is we open the field for others. And the others are the charlatans. And if, and if we let the people say that, uh, that who found Sodom and Gomorrah you know, uh, catch the media attention, then that's what the media and the public's gonna hear. And if you don't constantly put out credible stories, balanced stories about the past, even if they're exciting and riveting, then somebody else is gonna do it for you. Thank you very much.